I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. You know, I was at the SETI conference. You were at SETICon. I was. Fantastic. What did you think of it? We didn't know what we were doing. It was fantastic. Oh, great. And do, does everyone know that Jill Tarter uh, is the head of SETI? Oh, well, why director of the SETI, the s director of the Center for SETI Research at the SETI Institute in Mountain View, California. So we have three centers. One of them deals uh, is the Carl Sagan Center for the Study of Life in the Universe. The other is the Center for Education and Public Outreach. I'm going to skip over the Jodie Foster thing, okay? Yeah. <laughs> I, Although I, will I didn't you. bring my headphones. <laughs> Although I will tell you, it's a real... Con I lived in L.A. My house used to be Jodie Foster's house. Oh, cool. So right. we have that little uh, connection. She's, she's a very bright woman. She is. She is. She came to the house one day with her sister, and I opened it, and uh, they wanted, you know, to look at it. And I'm See like, what you've uh, done to the place, right? I, I should have just taken my dog for a walk and let them, but now I'm like, don't you love what I did here? Don't you love what I did there? No, they didn't. <laughs> uh, but here's the thing. Uh, in the last uh, conversation... I was saying that one thing that I thought science could do differently was perhaps uh, lose the uh, arrogance with which some people present their absolute sureness that they're right and everybody else is wrong or stupid. Now, the thing about SETICON was the most phenomenal openness it was incredible. I had been at a conference in Toronto with Margaret Race and Edna, um, I can't remember her last name, but these are two women from SETI. And uh, <clears throat> Margaret Race had talked about the committee that she works with that is looking for ways to minimize... Uh, planetary protection. Right. Planetary protection, but this is what got me also looking for ways to minimize the impact of us on anything we encounter. Right. It goes, it's forward contamination and back contamination. Well, we want to protect those planets from us as well. But that's kind of new. I mean, that's kind of Heisenberg-y. Yeah. <laughs> you mean we're thinking before we blunder in? Well, and also the idea that we do impact on the experiment. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So th that was incredible. And I brought a young friend of Danny Hillis's and mine there because of a thesis she's doing uh, for her master's degree on protecting the moon from lunar tourism. And the... She better hurry up. The X Prize <laughs> is on its way. I know. Well, no, I didn't know. What? Oh, the Google Lunar X Prize, which is yeah. a great challenge. But there's extra money for going to one of the Apollo landing sites as part of the... Contest rules, you get extra dollars if you if you do that. Check out the footprints still uh -huh. there. And in the meantime, you're leaving tracks in of the... Of course. And is this part of the reason the uh, government has decided to pull back on the moon thing? Because private industry is... I think governments decided to pull back on the moon thing because 
the Chinese are going to go there. Uh, we've been there, and in terms of exploration, I think they got that right. The moon isn't the n- where we need to go for exploration and learning new things. Um, it's a it's a very convenient staging point. They're still talking, perhaps someday, about a a polar uh, colony landing site. Um, but no, moving on farther. It's been a long time. We haven't gotten very far. Right. So let me just make this one point, which is how open everybody was there. Really, really open, including uh, the new, uh, is he Dr. Uh, Griffin? Oh my gosh, I'm so bad with names. Oh. The, um, which the one? new head of SETI overall. Oh, it's, it's Tom Pearson. Tom Pearson. Right. Or maybe it was the old one. I don't even it's remember. CEO. Right. But someone asked a question, um, what they thought of a certain NOVA program that had described, uh, you know, it was almost like Geraldo Rivera finding <laughs> the hoard of gold under the sewers of Paris. They had, you know, done an expedition, and they were going to find something that would be scientifically extraordinary. And later it turned out that NOVA had, in fact, financed this. And so someone asked the question, and both Margaret Race and Dr. Pearson said, you know what, maybe it'll turn out in another 50 years they were right. And in the meantime, they've inspired kids to love science and to follow a career in science. Right. And we're all trying to um, become the next Carl Sagan because the Cosmos series had such an impact on a generation and a half of young people who became scientists because of Cosmos. We, when we go out in, uh, among my colleagues, I get that over and over. I became a scientist because of Cosmos. So this gives me a hint as to my question. When you uh, hire people at SETI or when you gather the people you want working there, is this a key element then in whom you hire? Well. Um, let's just say we try and cultivate that skill in everyone who's been there and we think about it with new hires and then we lock some people away in the closet and let others go out in front of the <laughs> public. You know? we're, we're good to a certain extent. But we do think about it. We do have a center for education and public outreach. We do um, worry a lot about educating the next generation. So we've been fortunate to have funding from both the National Science Foundation and from NASA to develop curriculum for uh, integrated science uh, in high school, and we've got uh, additional add-on guides for grades three through nine. So we're we're trying to to get across the fact that you know science is fun. Yeah, if Danny were sitting here, he'd be chuckling. I mean, science is oh, fun. He loves I'm it. Trying right? to fill in for him. Oh. Yeah, um, and that's something that we don't say often enough. We, we bemoan our getting grants and the problem of this and my stupid colleague who said that and um, my goodness, there's a huge portion of our population that doesn't believe in evolution. <sighs> God. Um, so, uh, but we never say, or we don't often enough say, you know, being a scientist is a fantastic privilege. You get up in the morning, you get to pose your own questions, you try and find answers no one's ever found before, and you never have to stop asking why. 
you don't ever have to grow up. And that's not a message. And it's not easy. I mean, I don't mean to trivialize being a scientist. There's a whole lot of time you've got to put in to earn the chops, to get the, the training, to uh, hone the techniques, and to develop the critical skills to, to judge yourself. And um, try always in the back of your mind not to fool yourself, not to believe too quickly what you want to be the outcome. And we all, we all fail. I mean, we, we do as a good job sometimes and not so good other times. But um, this idea that you're going to perhaps understand something about the universe that no one else has figured out, I think is one of the great uh, perks of being a scientist. I agree. It's the adventuresome. I, that's why I loved uh, what uh, Saul Griffith said about how tunes that it isn't we're making science accessible to kids. It's we're teaching them not to be afraid of the world, not to be afraid to break things, not to go out. No, and actually, I hope what we're doing is allowing them be, to continue to be that way because that's the way they were born. Yeah. They were naturally curious and adventurous. And then we had a cure for that. It's called education. Right? And we drummed it out of them. What a waste not to nurture that curiosity and that openness and that not having preconceived answers and being willing to see what is. So here's a... I mean, I'm sure that people want to hear you talk more about SETI and what you're doing. Uh, I, I have a question, though, before you do that, which is, have you encountered, is there any segment of the scientific community that questions, let us say, what you're about, or that considers it a waste of time or not really science? Or um, all of the above, right? Uh, science and scientists are not monolithic, right? I think probably the majority of my scientific colleagues would, would as, uh, aspire or would say that what I do is just fine as an avocation. But you ought to have your tenured faculty position, right? And you should be teaching something that's standard um, and do this on the side. To do it as a vocation, that's a pretty, that's a little marginal for a lot of people because I end up publishing negative results. Uh, I happen to be one of those people who get a real kick out of doing something better today than I could do it yesterday, even if I don't come up with a, yes, this is the answer. We just do the search a little better. But then there are, there, there are colleagues who think what we're doing is absolutely off the charts not worth doing. I don't think that's a very large percentage. Most of my colleagues are incredibly supportive. They just wouldn't do it themselves. You know, it's, a, it's a funny thing. We had a, we had a meeting in Greenbank, West Virginia last month. It was the 50th anniversary of the very first radio search done by Frank Drake in uh, 1960. He's the one who just retired, is that correct? Uh, Frank is, has just retired, yes. And uh, we were celebrating his 80th birthday and the 50th anniversary of uh, the first search. Uh, it's amazing what we can do today. We're 14 orders of magnitude more comprehensive in our searching today than what Frank started with. 
that's that's the beginning of this exponential that we're intending to ride so we can actually finally do a search that's um, commensurate with the size of the universe. Um, but it, it was interesting to look at the history and interesting to see that when Frank was getting started, there was all of this um, enthusiasm uh, and an over-optimism, right? We had um, Lily trying to communicate with dolphins. And I think everybody was sort of sitting on the edge of their seat thinking, oh, next week, next month, right, we're going to con communicate with an alien species. And we oversaw that. We, we, we actually were so arrogant, right? <laughs> um, we didn't understand that we weren't asking the right questions. We shouldn't be asking the dolphins to understand our world. We should be trying to understand theirs. Wittgenstein. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and we should have left the drugs out of it altogether. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not so sure about that. It didn't. No, there I were some couldn't. dolphins that didn't do real well with that regimen. Oh, I didn't realize the yeah. dolphins ran drugs. I thought it was just the scientists. <laughs> For sure, the scientists, but some of them thought we should spread the joy, right? Not well, but, you know, going back, I, I had this conversation with Danny because... And it's heightened, heightened awareness. Because I was looking at, I was thinking about Clever Hans. Does everybody know about Clever Hans? He was a horse who was much ballyhooed because apparently he could do arithmetical uh, sums, right. His owner would say, what is four and seven? And then he would stamp his foot until he arrived at the proper sum, and then he would stop. Well, then they found out that he wasn't really doing arithmetic, that the own, his owner was unconsciously sending a subtle body language signal when he arrived at the right number, and that's when the horse would stop. And everybody's like, oh, stupid Hans. Oh, you know, horses can't do math. Oh, we were stupid to ever think animals were smart. And I'm like, how smart is the horse? For <laughs> it figured out this little, get, what, what do poker players call it? Uh, a, a tell. Yeah. Well, you know, we're back in that same conundrum with, um, unfortunately, Alex, a, a gray African parrot, palette, a yeah. parrot Alex, uh, died a year or so ago. And we're still pondering over what was going on. Um, could that bird really tell yellow from orange, round from square? Um, I, you know, I, when I look at the tapes, there's one very famous tape where Alex was acting up, and uh, his punishment was to be deprived human interaction. So they shut Alex off in a room, and apparently the camera was still on. Anyway, Alex is pacing back and forth and saying, Bad bird! <gasps> you stupid parrot! Bad bird! He's cussing himself out because he's, he took it too far, or that's what we human observers infer from seeing this tape. Now, was Alex really ticked off at himself because he yeah. played it too hard and got punished? I don't know. I think so. I, I'll it's compelling. You, I, it's I hear, compelling, but I is it right? Over, no, I, I'm the wrong per You know, I read an experiment once where they were testing pigeons' uh, oral what's the word, uh, hearing acuity, mm -hmm. yeah. and their ability to tell, you know, th what they did was they played them a lot of Bach, and then they played them a lot of Stravinsky. 
And then they played them different composers, and the pigeons had to put them in the Bach category or the Stravinsky category. Did they vote? Well, all the pigeons got it right except for one, who put Buxtehude in the Stravinsky category. And, so, and I'm like, I'm not, I'm, for me, that pigeon has spent the rest of his life, I knew it was us. I knew it was Stravinsky. <laughs> this is why I don't like doing experiments with animals at all. <laughs> <laughs> we give them complexes, you're saying. But... For instance, you know, much as I admire Noam Chomsky for some things, I, I detest what he did. Again, the arrogance and the orthodoxy and uh, fundamentalism of his position on animal speech. Because uh, Coco, the gorilla, who, you know, she made a joke. And I'm sorry, you did. What happened was uh, her trainer was you know, demonstrating her verbal abilities at, or her comprehension abilities and asked her to bring her something red. And Coco brought her a white towel. And the trainer said, no, I asked for something red. And Coco pointed to a red thread on the towel. Now that to me is a joke. <laughs> and if you can do a joke, then you know language. Well, actually, there's another uh, Coco story that uh, I'm familiar with. It's, it was a, a relative of Penny uh, who came who was quite visibly pregnant. And Coco looked at her, and is, Penny says she signed, ate too much candy? Oh, my God. Well, and it may have been a joke as well. So... Um, is this, this is what I'm concerned about if we do encounter an extraterrestrial intelligence. How, I mean, our record isn't so good. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, so you can think about the tyranny of light speed. If we only encounter information, uh, we may be saved from ourselves by the fact that we have to figure it out and they don't know we got the message until we decide to send some reply back. So we can, we can try and get smart. If, in fact, they come here, which I highly doubt, I think that's a lot harder than we think. It may even be impossible. If they come here, uh, the game's over in the sense that what will happen will be determined by their obvious in, uh, uh, superior, that's the word I'm looking for, technology, because we can't get there. So, um, I don't know. Uh, on this planet, when we have had interactions between two very different cultures, one technological, one less advanced, the less advanced culture has not fared very well. But in fact, what we forget is it's the virus vector that has been so devastating. We brought disease. Is that it? Can not ask your favorite fantasy of what happens, but maybe you'll tell... Maybe I'll say it in the next session. Thank you, Emily. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.